and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Before we get to the show, let's get the pleasantries out of the way. First of all, our website. If you want more information about our little podcast, go to wearethecontrarians.com. That's where you'll find links to our old episodes, to our Patreon channel, and to our awesome Contrarians merch. You can show your support by buying a Contrarians mug or a pillow. I like the laptop bags myself. Second of all, if you enjoy the show, tell your friends. Or even go a step further and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Finally, if you want to reach out directly to us, that's what social media is for. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Contrarian Prime, or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. Julio runs our official Twitter account at Contrarian Prime, but if you want to give me a piece of your mind or just want to banter about pro wrestling, you can follow me at Contrarian Alex. That's it. That's our intro. Now, time for the show. This is And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for Frank. Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my contrarian counterpart, Julio Oliveira. Julio, how are you doing today? You ready to put on a giant paper mache head and just deny reality? Is it paper mache or is it uh, fiberglass? Because I've seen it referred as both in different quotes, different sources. It looks like paper mache, and ba- and you know, going off what the source material is, I, I think it's paper mache meant to be interpreted that way, at least. I mean, that's pretty resilient then for paper mache. So I would think that would get squished pretty quickly. What are you talking about? I mean, you know, paper mache, and you can make it like a clay almost, where it's hardened, because you know what we see later on in the movie when Frank's head busts open, it, it definitely looks like a almost like a ceramic but i remember making paper mache when i was a little kid that was hard enough to to break kind of like a brick or something did you uh did you make a mask for yourself no i remember seeing like how to make paper mache on nickelodeon one time and like i made like a like a face like a like a i can't remember what i made i remember it had like it was a green face and red eyes but it wasn't something to put on me it was just kind of like <laughs> arts and crafts time something to stare at yeah well, speaking of something to stare at, Michael Fassbender. <laughs> speaking of artsy and craftsy, uh, yeah, Michael Fassbender uh, making his kind of his debut on the on the main feed. We had it's him a pretty the, fitting way for him to debut on this, and in, in, to where we don't see him until the last ten minutes of the movie. Incognito, um, he was with us when we did the Prometheus commentary, but you know mm-hmm. that's that's a different kind of beast. Yeah, here he can't escape. We're going to analyze him. Uh, him and his pretentious type of music. What is this? What 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 do you call the music that they play in this in this movie, Alex? I don't know. Would this be like experimental, industrial, a little bit flaming lips? Um, not for me is what I would call it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I call it uh, pretentious bullshit. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, Frank, were you disappointed that this was not about Frank Stallone? <laughs> <laughs> that would have been absolutely fantastic. <laughs> he takes a mask off as Frank Stallone. <laughs> he takes a mask off. It's Frank Stallone. He just launches into that uh, speech he goes into in Fred Claus. <laughs> Whatever the case, we're going to Wicklow, Ireland. We're going to Albuquerque, New Mexico. We're going to 2014's Frank, directed by Lenny Abrahamson. I had some difficulty pronouncing that on our last episode, and then written by 
John Ronson and Peter Staugen and Julio. Why are we discussing this movie? This comes to us courtesy of patron Josh Ragland, who uh, came up to the plate during this patron takeover that has taken over the entire 2023, feels like. Uh, Josh is famous around Contreras quarters for two reasons, Alex. One is that I think last year he made a Christmas movie watch list to to help me develop a, a taste for Christmas movies. I don't know if you remember this, but... I he, do, yes. Yeah, and I watched them all, and I rated them all, and we talked about it on the Patreon channel. So that's number one. Number two is that uh, he's a fellow Pearl Jam fan, and I, we've never met. We just know each other through the internet. But it turns out that both him and I were at the same Pearl Jam concert when they played here uh, in Austin for ACL. And he doesn't even live in Austin. <laughs> he just came to ACL <laughs> years and years ago. So That's excellent. In a way, it's fitting that when he finally got to give us a, a movie to talk about on the show, he would give us a movie that revolves around music, because music is one of the connections we have. Now, if you ask me, Pearl Jam is, is a little more uh, my speed compared to what... Uh, Michael Fassbender and, and his band are doing here, but but still, there is a little bit of a connection. And do we have his reasoning for why he chose this? He gave me a link to his letterbox review. So, Josh, we will be reading your thoughts uh, once we get to Real Talk. Excellent. Well, I'm excited to dive into this one, so let's get right to it uh, by first explaining to any potential new listeners what they can expect here on The Contrarians. Here on The Contrarians... We like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That is our battle cry. Find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated, a lot of times accompanied with that just gorgeous, lovely IP that indicates that it is certified fresh. And what we will do with those movies is cut them down to size. We will discuss some of the maybe overlooked negative aspects of it that, for whatever reason, no one's called out. Bad direction, questionable acting, bad storytelling, poor score, um, just Anything that we can, you know, sink our teeth into, dig our claws into to make our case. Conversely, we'll find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is lowly rated, one of those nasty green splotches known as Rotten. And we, as you could guess, will make a case for that film's positive merit. We will find what we can to do our job in making it sound like a good movie. For our rotten films, we usually shoot for about 30% below. For our fresh movies, we usually, what, about 85% and above. We, we'll bend our rules from time to time for our wonderful patrons, but being that Frank is a towering 92% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes with over 150 reviews. So it's not just, you know, eight people were like, hey, this movie's good. It's a real deal, Holyfield. 23,000 people watch him on YouTube. <laughs> uh, interestingly enough, the audience score is 72% with over 10,000 logged ratings. Hmm. I think. I think we'll we'll eventually get to why that could be. <laughs> but what I'm describing and what we're going to do with Frank here, that's just our first half. We call that Contrarian's Corner. Julio, if listeners want to know how we really feel about the movie we're discussing, in this case, Frank, they just have to hang around for the second half for part two of the episode. 
That is correct. The second part of every episode, aptly titled Real Talk, is where we tell you how we really feel. Uh, I think that by now we've both been pretty open about uh, how we feel about the music in Frank, but that doesn't mean that uh, that's how we feel about the movie itself. So if you want to know how we feel about Frank, if you want to know how we experience Frank, independently of the Rotten Tomatoes score, independently of our gimmick here for Contrarian's Corner... Well, you stick around for the second half, and that's where you will learn that. Uh, I had seen this movie before, a long time ago, back in 2016, according to Letterboxd. Uh, Alex, this is the first time, so it should be an interesting discussion. But before that, it's super fresh, so we're going to talk about it as if it was super rotten. That's what's going to happen in Contrarian's Corner. In film. So 92% certified fresh with this kind of movie, too. I imagine it's one of those that probably put that certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes sticker on the DVD release. <laughs> this movie was too hip for DVD, Alex. <laughs> it went right to minidisc. Yes. <laughs> Betamax. Well, whatever the case, Julio, what were critics saying about this? All right. We've got a handful of fresh tomatoes from the Rotten Tomatoes website. We're going to start with Frank Ochien from Puputik. Man, already. <laughs> I mean, Popoptic, that is a website that would cover a movie like Frank. Uh, <laughs> he says, Frank is a delightful, finger-snapping oddball set to music and creative mayhem. Did you find yourself snapping your fingers as you were watching this movie, Alex? Uh, just in the sense of like, let's go, come on, keep it going. Move it along. Next song, please. Uh, Cody Corral from Paste Magazine says, Frank is much more interested in the rough than the diamond. And because of that, it remains one of the more refreshing representations of musical genius and the nature of fame in recent memory. Musical genius, Alex. Do you think that they may be, may be overselling Michael Fassbender's talent in this movie? A tad. I think that might be a bit taxing. I mean, I think even the movie would agree or, you know, would disagree with that. I don't think the movie presents him as a musical genius. Presents him as somebody that can make music, but I think it's about something other than his actual talent. Uh, next, John Louis from The Straits Times, Singapore, says, Abrahamson finds a wider range of emotion from Fassbender's doll head than other directors do from an ensemble of players. I mean, that... <laughs> You, the credit for that should go to Michael Fassbender. I hate the idea that we're crediting <laughs> this, Michael Fassbender is literally one of the greatest actors of the last twenty five <laughs> years, and we're like, oh yeah, can you believe it? He could act his way out of a paper bag. <laughs> it's so good the way that they framed that shot of his unemoting doll head. Uh, all right, we're gonna close with Robert Roten from Laramie Movie Scope, who says a film ought to have something more to recommend it than a high degree of strangeness. But being strange is what this film is all about. Resistance to this film's goofy charm is futile. Resistance is futile, Alex. People have been telling me that about the city of Austin for several years, and I very much disagree. <laughs> Appropriately enough, the city of Austin makes a, <laughs> makes a cameo. In this the movie. city of Austin is nowhere near this movie except in name. Alex, that's not true. I saw the sign. It said SXSW. That's Austin, right? 
Yeah, with all the fucking brick road and shit. Yeah, that's that's Austin, all right. Well, Austin pre-COVID before the world moved on. None of this movie's filmed in Austin. I saw the Ritz. Where? There is there is a like a transitional shot and I even my note says, "Oh, the Ritz, RIP." Mm, I I'm going to challenge you on that one. I will play it again. I'll take a screenshot and I will send it to you. Okay. Maybe there's like a drone shot, but none of the actual like movie is filmed in often. Like actual them on their feet. That's not the convention center. That's there's no place called fucking Caps or whatever the hell they go to in Austin. That's supposed to be Magnolia. We'll get to that when we get to it. Yeah, I was gonna say the names have been changed to protect the innocent. The innocent, yeah. All right. Well, those were the quotes. Alex, take us to Contrarian's Corner. Lady in the red coat, what you doing with that bag? Lady in the blue coat, do you know the lady in the red coat? My first note says, son of Gleason. It's General Hux. Son of Gleason writing songs like Elf. Because, you know, that scene (laughs) in Elf where he's like, I'm here, and you're my dad, and I love you. That's what the beginning of this movie is. Pretty cringe. Uh, Do you really not think of his uh, Star Wars character when you see him? Is he in the Harry Potter movies? Yes, but I wouldn't expect you to know that or to to connect them to that franchise. I don't, but... He's one of the Weasleys. Yeah, my sister watched this movie with me, too. Okay, that's where my confusion came in. You said one of the Weasleys, because she said it's da-da-da Weasley. And I thought the Weasley, Ron Weasley, is the little redheaded kid that hangs out with... With Harry. And... Hermione. Emma Watson, yeah. (laughs) Yes. Okay. Well, he's uh, one of his... Older brothers. Okay, I see. And then, yes, he is General Hux. He is featured in the unbelievable Rise of the Resistance attraction (laughs) at Disney World. Oh, that's awesome. Does he talk to you or does he talk to the bad guys and you just overhear? Uh, He he talks to, yeah, you kind of are like, you know, um, fly on the wall. Like he doesn't know you're there and he's talking to kylo ren and then kylo becomes aware of your presence and bro <laughs> i love it <laughs> are they talking about frank when you're over here <laughs> yeah adam driver tells him every day i wake up and i wish you were dead and then <laughs> gleason's like you don't understand man i had a tour with this guy that just wore a paper mache head never saw him you showered with it uh twitter immediately dates this film because it's x now we yep. see like uh, that's a constant throughout the movie of um, which I guess in 2014 would have kind of still been a novelty. The idea of uh, our main character, who in this case I, I did mention is uh, Dom Nall. I have such a hard time pronouncing Dom Dom Nall. Dom Nall. How do you pronounce his first name? I just say Donald. <laughs> oh, OK. Well, <laughs> you can get it, by with that because English is your second language. Right. but. I, my, notes, my notes say General Hux. Okay. Son of Gleason. He plays <laughs> John Burroughs, which sounds like if there was a bootleg NFL game that was trying to get around trademarks, instead of Joe Burrow, they would name it John Burroughs. <laughs> and as Wikipedia describes him, a young wannabe musician who joins Frank's band. All right, so let's just get it out of here. While walking along the beach in his hometown, aspiring songwriter John Burroughs witnesses a man named Lucas trying to drown himself. As Lucas is taken to the hospital, John meets Don. 
who explains that Lucas was the keyboardist for a band called the. Here we go. Th- that's one of the jokes of the movies because they never explain how to pronounce the name. Soron Perfibs. <laughs> it's spelled S O R O N P R F B S. And Don manages them. After mentioning that he plays keyboards, John is invited to perform with them that night. The band's drummer, Nana, synthesizer, and Thurman player, Clara. Or is it Clara or Clara? I think it's Clara. It's the non-mainstream Joan Hall. <laughs> it is Maggie Joan Hall. She definitely has a presence to be felt in this. And guitarist Barquet are reluctant to accept John, but he is warmly welcomed by lead vocalist Frank, who always wears a paper mache mask over his head. Their performance abruptly ends when Clara storms off the stage after being shocked by an electric fault. So he plays keyboards. Yeah, when we first see Fossbender in this, he looks like a Funko Pop. <laughs> I was thinking uh, Jack from Jack in the Box. Oh, that's a good one because they don't even really use that anymore. The Frank character is based off the Frank Sidebottom character of comedian Chris Sive. Sive. I in my brief research I did for this episode, I, I did watch some clips of uh, Chris, and I couldn't find how to properly pronounce his last name. So Sive, Sive. I, I apologize, Chris, um, but he had a character, Frank Sidebottom, that looked an awful lot like this and is something that was um, a pretty large reputation in England. Now, he was a Michael Fassbender, and when uh, I watch this, we're recording this a day later than we typically do because I've had some internet issues for the past week. And I was watching this movie yesterday and literally right when he took the stage, because I, I had done a bit of research, so I knew this was Michael Fassbender. Mm-hmm. And right as he started to sing, the internet went out for a day. And I was like, you got to be fucking kidding me. I was about to hear Michael <laughs> Fassbender, like, you know, croon. And now it's gone. So it immediately took me out of it. But when I resumed it today, it ends as quickly as it started. And it immediately goes into a question of, I don't know about for you, Julio, for me, it immediately became, okay, is this a road trip movie or is this like a mystery about who this guy is? Yeah. I can say it's the second time I watched it. So I knew that it was not a mystery. I I knew, I mean, I already knew, I wonder what it's like to watch this movie not knowing that that's Fassbender. Like, because, you know, there's no opening credits. Hold hold that thought because my sister watched this not knowing anything about it with me. I love it. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I don't know that it's designed to be a mystery as far as, you know, the real world mystery, like the meta mystery of, do you know, that is this big name actor? But I knew, and that kind of takes away some of the mystique. What I mean necessarily in like, do you know who the actor is of just like, is the movie supposed to be who is this guy? What's his deal? Right. Or I mean, the, is it just a story of a traveling band? Yeah. Yeah. The quest to remove the, the paper mache head and find out what he looks like. Yeah. I mean, it's, I took it, it's just one of those movies about like, the band that that's we just did one. It's like the commitments only like shittier because this one, they can't play good music. Granted, they're at least originals, but to me it was I, when I came back for this rewatch, I was like, oh yeah, it's a band movie. You know, the the new kid, our point of view character, becomes inducted into this band, and then it's just like they make an album. I remember that they 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 kind of become a big deal, and then they kind of fall apart, just like the commitments, just like that thing you do. Just at this point, um, it's it's hard for the contrarians not to realize that there is a very uh, 
specific formula for this type of movie. So I, I, I think I recognize the formula pretty, pretty early on. For my take, I will say that they do a pretty good job in this first sequence of masking, not masking, but like just lighting wise. I couldn't tell immediately that was Maggie Gyllenhaal. So in the next scene when they're like in the van together and shit, I was, oh, that's Maggie Gyllenhaal. (laughs) And at the start, they do a pretty good job of having like this bona fide B-lister in their movie and not really drawing attention to it. But then by the second act, she's in full Maggie Gyllenhaal mode. <laughs> so when you see her, they go, Rachel. Or do you just think Maggie? Rachel. <laughs> no, I just think of the very like annoying Baker, the very litigious and um, loquacious Baker from Stranger Than Fiction that Will Ferrell, you know, falls in love with. I'm like, mm-hmm. man, Emma Thompson's right there. What are you doing, dude? <laughs> he likes his women combative. Uh, she she's uh I know she can she has range you know within her Maggie Gyllenholness there is range but in this movie it's like uh, Abrahamson just told her look here's the direction for the entirety of of the film scowl that's it <laughs> anytime you think of something you want to do just remember scowl that that's all there is to it. Let everybody else shine, but you you're here for support and for scowling. And and that's what she does. She is uh she comes across as a very unhappy person. Even towards the end, when we get to hear her sing, it's depressing as hell. Yes, which is like most of the movies I've ever seen her in. <laughs> she even dies in the dark night. <laughs> she does. While like pleading about how it's gonna be okay and explosion. <laughs> Wow, this is beautiful. What do you call it? Stay away from my fucking theremin. All right, so they basically move to a commune in Ireland where they're going to work on this album. And I think in total, they end up staying there for like a year. But in the beginning, we get like these weird happenings that we're watching through the perspective of John. Because, you know, I've, I've read a lot of things that declare Frank is the main character in this. I think son of gleason is definitely the main character yeah yeah general hux is is the one that has the arc as we like to say (laughs) whenever we we need to default to like who is this story about it's it's really about uh about son of gleason learning that uh sometimes he just needs to let greatness shine on without him and yeah here he's just it's weird because they basically kidnap him and take him to Ireland. He grows a pretty sick beard in the process, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he never communicates with his family again. Like, we know he has parents, but we never see him call them to tell them, like, hey, I'm okay. Because originally he was just leaving for the weekend. And I guess we have to assume that he lost his job because he told his boss that he was coming back on Monday. And he just never returns on a whim. <laughs> he just devotes <laughs> his life to this band. Yeah. And when we get there, we get some... Like some of the band members seem like they're trying to escape, and we wonder if this is like a cult or a commune. And we get kind of the uh, Lancaster Dodd and Freddie Quill scenes of <laughs> Frank warming up to John about you know his music and how talented he is. And uh, this Maggie Gyllenhaal, uh, Clara, and this she's very you know insecure and jealous about this. And as soon as she hears John say he has some songs that he's written she you know embarrasses him in front of everybody because she she knows he's just talking a big game and she says play him now and forces him to try to ad-lib these songs that turn out 
you know, like we said, in a really embarrassing fashion for him. Uh, on the cutting room floor, sadly, uh, the scene where she gives Frank a hand job. <laughs> he bangs his head against the bathroom mirror. <laughs> it breaks the mirror and she's like, you're going to stop fucking around with this John guy? No more booze? <laughs> the house they have here in Ireland they just stop paying rent. So this German family shows up and this is the scene that kind of leads to the mystique of Frank. But before we get to there um, up until this point, it was starting to drive my sister crazy that she couldn't figure out who it was because uh-huh. I was like, uh, she's like, is it like a known actor? It's like, yeah, he's, he's doing fairly well for himself. And, <laughs> she was getting more and more annoyed and I, Dermot Maroney was one of the names she threw out at one point. And I swear to God, she could not get it until the scene where he starts speaking in German. I'm impressed when he starts speaking in German to the family. She goes, is it fucking Fossbender? And I was like, it is <laughs> because, you know, of course the famous scene in X-Men where he's speaking German and he speaks German and Inglorious bastards. Also, yep. if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. uh, so there you go. I, I can't speak a lick of German. I can count to four in German just because of the Ramones. And I don't know if my sister can do any better than that. But just dialect and, you know, pronunciation wise, she can determine Michael Fossbender based off of how he speaks German. And then once she figured that out, she was like, all right, I'm good. Then she went to sleep. She's like, I'm going to bed. I'm done. <laughs> but what happens here is one son of Gleason explains that like a fucking idiot his grandfather left him a bunch of money and he's like, Oh, I'll just drop it on this. And that's what happens in a cult, first of all. And then two, <laughs> to convince this German family to leave, the the mother of the family, Frank takes out for a walk, and we don't hear it's literally the end of um Lost in Translation. <laughs> thank you. I couldn't even finish my own joke. I was I was getting there. <laughs> but anyway, they walk off and he says something to her, and then she's just overcome with joy and they drive away and she says something like to the effect of thank you for teaching me the the joy in life or the meaning of life or some (laughs) bullshit and it's like what does this guy know so then of course it builds him up like a prophet yeah he's 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 kind of a musical jesus figure and he it's not even that he asked for the money like you said son of uh lisa just volunteered his his entire savings his his nest egg uh so by now, Alex, I think that we, we have a pretty good grasp of the characters, or at least as good as it's going to get, right? You have uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal, who's always angry. You have the the French guy that only speaks French, except for later in the movie when suddenly he speaks English. And then you have the the drummer that's usually silent. Like I, I could never, I didn't know until like much, much later that, that because I couldn't tell if she was French or not. Like She was also somebody that only spoke French. And then you have... Uh, What's his name? Ben, right? The guy that, uh, by his own admission, like used to have sex with mannequins, right? That's that's something he says at some point. Rock and roll. Yep. Uh, and then, of course, you have Frank, who wears a giant paper mache head. So, so the tone of this movie is like quirky. It's like quirky with capital Q. Did that start to give you pause <laughs> once you realize that we're going to spend uh, ninety minutes or so with with these people and? Nobody else? I wasn't fired up, I'll say that. Were you waiting for the hamburger phone to make an appearance? (laughs) 
<laughs> I was waiting for someone to call the other one fertile. Mer- yeah, that, I was waiting for Maggie Gyllenhaal <laughs> to be pregnant and say, what is it? Your ego is pregnant. That's it. Yeah, fertile Myrtle. Yeah. So we flash forward, what, 10, 10 months or so, and we got a pretty sick beard on Son of Gleason. He's still tweeting. If I wasn't so fucking fat, I think I would look like that. But uh, <laughs> like if I just got a strong coke addiction and lost 150 pounds. <laughs> now fucking Dom Hall Gleason's going to listen to this and be like, God damn, if I was fat, I would look like that guy. <laughs> no, nah, it's just I us ginger beards got to look out for one another. But give um, yourself a Frank. That's how you lose weight. I guess so. Yeah, because he is kind of gone. <laughs> the the just absolute absurdity of the scene did make me laugh. He he's he's got to ask Frank a question or something. He opens the door and hears the shower running and he sees the Frank mask on the ground. He's like, oh man, you know, I got to get a peek. Famously, you know, El Santo or Mil Mascaris, those luchadors of you know yesteryear that would never be seen without their mask. That's one of the famous Jim Cornette stories about, um, I think it was a clash of champions in Corpus Christi. He worked where Mill Mascaris is um, to just as quickly and concisely as I can do this. Mill Mascaris was a professional wrestler in Mexico. Um, and of course th- they're famed for their mask. He was the man of a thousand masks. And the way that works there is you never let down your guard. So <laughs> the coolest thing you'll ever see is, you know, those guys are treated like real celebrities back in those days and real sports figures. And so you'd see them at events in like three piece suits, but with their fucking masks on. And uh, <laughs> Jim Cornette told this story of working a show and it was 88, 89, 90, 91, somewhere in that range. <laughs> he was backstage. He's like, who's that old guy over there? And someone said, that's Mel Mascaris. And he goes, oh, fuck. <laughs> it's like, I saw him without the mask on, and that was pretty cool. And that's immediately what came to mind when I saw this. Um, El Santo was so legendary, in fact, that he is featured in the Pixar film Coco as uh, a Mexican celebrity that shows up in the afterlife. Uh, With his before- mask on. Correct. Shortly <laughs> before his death, he was, I think I've told this story before in here, but shortly before his death, he was on you know whatever the mexican equivalent of the today show is or good morning america and good morning mexico i guess but um he was just on there doing an appearance and he lifted his mask up and just showed his face kind of unprompted and unprovoked and you could literally hear like women shrieking and men gasping (laughs) like oh my god like this is unbelievable so i kind of have respect for that the um, curiosity, but also protecting the gimmick. So I, I did appreciate the scene where he sees the mask on the ground, the paper mache head, and he's like, "Well, I gotta see, you know, what's back there." And shame had already come out, so I'd be in the same boat of like, "I want to see if that shit's real, dude." So uh, <laughs> he walks back, and <laughs> the curtain flies open, and Frank's in there with another mask on but with like a bag over it like when i was in kindergarten <laughs> i broke my arm and i had to take a shower with a bag over my arm it's ridiculous yeah it's uh it's funny also but also after you've seen the movie it's a little it's dark because they're setting up the fact that there's two masks so that later there's a, when there's a switcheroo of uh, of heads uh, for a much more tragic scene there's a setup for it and i it's really weird I, but at the time, I, I didn't remember, so I thought also that it was it was kind of funny. Um, 
what do you make of this decision to to kind of let Fassbender talk from inside the mask? He has relationships with real women now, but it's hard, you know. He has to convince them to lie completely still. So you know, hey, don't tell Don I I said anything. No. He might think it a shameful secret. Who is who is less intelligible, him or Tom Hardy as Bane? Well, at least in this case, they stuck to their guns and didn't make him record another track to play over it. <laughs> I mean, we don't know that. I guess. I, As much as I'll defend The Dark Knight Rises, that is easily the worst part about that movie, how his audio track doesn't match anything else in the movie. But also, like, Fassbender's still, he's, he's kind of got, like, a, a weird tone he's going for, but it's not... <laughs> <laughs> But also, I mean, Bane is not a singer. Uh, he never sings in the movies, so. He should have been. If we had <laughs> fucking Lenny Abrahamson directing Dark Knight Rises, Bane would have been up there crooning, don't you want me, baby? <laughs> this is just Michael Fassbender talking like he's trying to disguise his voice. Uh, I was trying to remember who it was. Bartley Gorman was who Tom Hardy said he tried to sound like. And as having rewatched... Um, Dunkirk in the past day. That's also another one where he's it's just like, dude, just talk like yourself, man. <laughs> well, we were talking about uh, we were talking about accents just last episode, like Ray Fiennes and tr- him trying to sound like James Woods. Can you tell? Like, were you <laughs> were you thinking, yeah, this is he sounds American, like Frank sounds American, or did you think, oh no, Frank is European? Oh, I forgot in the end he is American too. That's spoiler alert. He's from fucking Kansas. <laughs> yep. Um I yeah, I fucked up. I fucked up I <laughs> by reading like who was in this. Cause even though like that's all I retained was it was Michael Fossbender and Son of Gleason. Um because I forgot Maggie Gyllenhaal was in. I was like, oh shit, Maggie Gyllenhaal. And so I really messed up by uh i should have done it like my sister and just waited till he started speaking german to understand who it was <laughs> so i i don't know if i can my point being is i don't know if i can um realistically answer those questions or fairly answer them well listeners there's a lot of you that watch frank i'm sure without knowing or maybe not i mean i don't know this is more of a real talk part but it's like who goes to see frank not knowing that michael fassbender is in it that's a good question <laughs> how do you arrive to a movie like frank uh, you know, if it's not that your brother has a podcast and he's doing a, an episode about it, and that's why he's watching it. But, you know, if you're just like a random person, did, did they advertise Fassbender like on the, on the poster? Like, what was Oh, this? yeah. The theatrical poster, the top of it is Fassbender's performance is a masterclass. <laughs> I'm just well, imagining the- like the, the guy or the gal that got bricked up at home watching shame and they're like, I need to see the next thing this guy does. And then went to this, be like, what the fuck is this? And, uh, Abraham's son just punching the wall when he sees all the marketing materials. <laughs> <laughs> like I built the entire movie to a big reveal of this guy taking his mask off. He just ruined it with the poster. So one of John's songs actually breaks through and Clara and Frank are able to build on it, make, a really good tune and they have like a celebratory night because of it. They are really excited about what they lay down and, you know, the potential that it holds uh, only for the next morning to 
pay off the fact that we learned there's two masks, right? Mm-hmm. But did you, As, what did you think when you saw the when you saw Frank hanging from a tree? I literally out loud said, "What the fuck?" Uh, because because we're all having so much fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's definitely quirky up until this point. I didn't know if they were going to run up and he was going to be like "Gotcha" or something, <laughs> but we see someone with the Frank mask hanging from a tree. They all cut it down, rush him over to a bench nearby, and then Frank walks in, kind of like, "What the fuck's going on?" They take the mask off, and it's Don, the the manager, and we quickly learn the prior keyboardist had hanged himself. You know, for a movie described as a comedy, I failed to see the comedy in this. Yeah, it, it's really weird, and especially when you consider that the opening was also there was a suicide attempt, right? The first or the keyboardist that that uh, Sonor Gleason ends up replacing, like he was trying to kill himself too. It's like ah, it's funny. That guy, as far as we know, survives, but then this guy was not so lucky. I think that by now, especially, it becomes even clearer later on. But this is, it's a movie that walks the tricky territory of uh, being a comedy about mental illness. And that is just, you need a lot of uh, skill to pull that off. And I don't know that they quite do it. Yeah, it doesn't help the tone quickly goes to comedy when they give them a Viking funeral. They put him on a, a boat and set it on fire and bring his ashes back in. I mean, I thought it was supposed to be played for comedy because it's a very dramatic cut to them prepping him to be burned at sea, you know? And you can just do that anyway. I mean, I know they're in Ireland, but you can't just burn somebody's corpse. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Like, it's a suicide. You should probably, well, <laughs> you think it is, but you should immediately call the authorities to figure out what the fuck's going on. Right. A damning portrayal of Ireland. (laughs) (laughs) And there's procedures, like I said, like even if if it was just like a natural death, you can't just burn somebody's dead body in your backyard. I mean, I'm sure you have to report that. Maybe it was in his will. Who knows? You got to get a permit. You ever seen Eulogy where they give Rip Torn a Viking funeral like that? And then the cops show up. Like, What the fuck are you guys doing? (laughs) Well, fear not, because things are good again, because John reveals that he has been secretly uploading the band's recording sessions on social media, earning them a small fan following and an invitation to perform at South by Southwest. (laughs) Tell me, Alex, tell me your reaction. Tell me about your reaction when when he very excitedly said that they were were invited to play at South by Southwest, because mine was, of course they would. Yeah, and that was still 2013 was the last time I went out like really excited for South by. And I remember just how kind of crushing of an experience it was and kind of upsetting. And I think I think I went to a few shows in 2014. I think the Generationals played and I made sure to go see them, but um maybe I could be making that. No, I saw them in 2013. So when this movie would have been made, I remember still having that optimism. And in the time that's passed since, it's just gotten to me, much like the city of Austin, (laughs) has gotten less and less enticing and become self-parody and... Um, what's uh malicious is 
not the right word. What's what am I looking for? Um, ill-intented, but you know, it still kind of had some pop and some zazz at the time this movie would have been made. Like, oh, South by Southwest. So that's all fine and good. And then they go to South by Southwest, but you know where they don't go is Austin, Texas. Uh, so <laughs> that really annoyed me. And for anyone that's been to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and anyone that's been to Austin, Texas, knows they look absolutely nothing alike. Like at first, when they were doing that shit where they were walking down the street, I was like, are they in fucking New Orleans? Because the way like the street was framed, I was like, you know, and they do stay at a hotel called the French Quarter Inn or some shit. But uh, <laughs> I was like, there's not any street in downtown Austin that looks anything like this. The architecture. Okay, but, that's, but that's that's movie magic. <laughs> no, movie magic. <laughs> <laughs> no, movie magic is you spend the first fucking 70 minutes of the movie on a boat getting to Austin, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had more of an issue with just the overdone friendliness <laughs> as they're walking down the street. Oh yeah, and that, like, that's like, like yes, it's like keep Austin weird, but at the same time, this is a guy that's wearing a giant paper mache. <laughs> <laughs> that and like when they actually talk to people, it's like the two scene girls, and I was like, oh my god. <laughs> and look, the overwhelming majority of people listening to this podcast right now have no fucking sympathy or like idea of really what we're like venting about. And that's I fine. I know, man. We, we get a lot of downloads from Texas. So <laughs> probably you are probably pissing off a lot of people. <laughs> what am I doing? Austin sucks, dude. And part of that is because they booed my boy Frank off the stage here. That's, uh... <laughs> they don't boo him. They celebrate him. Well, they do. And well, it's true. They, they fucking boo son of gleason not frank yes yeah i i was honestly it, it was just funny I, I you're right that i don't know how this reads to somebody that doesn't live in austin and because if you only know austin from from movies from from the the mythology around austin i guess this kind of makes sense right that they this really weird band shows up at this festival that i i guess celebrates weirdness and uh and they're kind of like set up to be a big hit and it's just that they get in their own way. But if you live in Austin, it still makes sense in an annoying way. As in, like, you, you just want to tell the movie, don't encourage this. <laughs> just how about you make a movie about that? A good band that shows up at South by Southwest. Hello. Something tells me that you guys are the CERN for Verb. That's us. We have to talk about, though, right before we get to Austin, quote unquote, we, we get a Maggie. It wouldn't be a Maggie Gyllenhaal movie without a big sex scene. And she gets in a fight with John and he's in the hot tub and he stands up and I guess he's naked. They just start screaming at each other and he calls her the C word. And uh, she apparently is aroused by this and they just have a just all out fuck fest in the hot tub. I mean, she's fucking him. I don't know that he's doing much. The ensuing argument culminates in having angry sex and Clara threatening to stab him if the trip to America goes awry. As detailed poignantly uh, by our friends at Wikipedia. He literally says, I'm dying here at some point in that scene. <laughs> uh, contrarians canon, just our, our Contrarians universe, Julio, just clashing violently here when they're driving to Austin. And uh, Son of Gleason says, it's just like Paris, <laughs> Texas, isn't it? Rookie mistake. And we, we point it out every time it happens. Do not reference a movie that's better than the one you're making. <laughs> 
<laughs> Isn't it? Like they shot Paris, Texas in Texas. My note here, is this supposed to be Austin? <laughs> I, and then the, the scene girls want to take him to the best pancake or you know breakfast spot in town, which immediately is like, okay, Magnolia Cafe. That's what everyone talks about here. They take him someplace called Caps and <laughs> ugh, does not exist. Not a real thing. Anyway, this is all too much for Frank to really take in. He doesn't understand, you know, the uh, magnitude of it, but also there's creative differences as John feels they should be making a bit more like, you know, not poppy, but more uh, goer friendly music. You know what I mean? More of music people would actually want to listen to instead of just <laughs> experimental drab. <laughs> Uh, what do you think of Fassbender's song? The one that he's like, oh, this is my most likable song. I did laugh at that very hard. Where he's just like, I can't remember the words he's saying, but it's, you, you know, tantamount to like puppy dogs, popsicles, rainbows, <laughs> that type of thing. Coca-Cola, lipstick ring, go dance all night, dance all night. I've got dancing legs. Woo! I've got dancing legs. Yeah, I think it's even funnier when you know that it's Fassbender under the Oh, mask. absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> goes a long way yeah uh yeah this is where where he starts falling apart uh frank that is and where the movie now at least when we had the when uh i called him ben or at least don when don committed suicide the movie stopped for a few minutes trying to be funny and it just took it seriously at least at least for that that scene here fassbender is falling apart he's clearly um having some sort of mental breakdown but the movie doesn't stop the comedy so it's just really it's just really awkward i i had trouble finding things funny because i knew that he was we were watching a man have a breakdown and and it goes on for several minutes and uh, just my my thought was well they can't all be silver linings playbook like you can't have david or russell's talent to deal with uh mental health and comedy at the same time but yeah did you do you have that that same feeling alex where you're like this is not fun anymore this is this is the equivalent of uh that scene in observant report like the one that i reference all the time when uh ray liotta calls seth rogan to his office and just uh dresses him down and then the guy that's that was hiding in the closet comes out it's like oh i thought it was gonna Clegg. be funny but it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's actually uh it's kind of sad. Yep. <laughs> but at least in that movie, we get the redemption at the end where you go, you know, that character gets, way to go, Ronnie. Whereas here, it just gets worse and worse. This movie, O'Doyle rules style, drives off a fucking cliff in the third <laughs> act. So leading up to the performance, the band begins to argue over creative differences. Clara and Frank disappear shortly before the concert, and John finds them in an alley. An alley that kind of looks like the alley I used to smoke <laughs> cigarettes in in my job, but definitely not. It's Sixth Street, man. It's definitely not. Uh, where Clara is helping Frank stave off a mental breakdown, John tries to get Frank to go back to the festival with him, prompting Clara to stab him in the leg as promised. After she is arrested, John uses a scandal to be publicity for the band because he says like chinchilla or something when he gets stabbed, right? Yes, yeah, he does. Yeah, which was the the safe word for the entire band. That's right. Yeah, and that's what builds the online like legacy of it. It's uh, what's a what's a famous viral video where there's like a, a quote people use now. You know, leave Britney alone or something like that. Uh, it's that little kid. Is this is this real life? Is that what the little kid that was high? Yeah, after yeah. 
Charlie bit my fingers. Yeah, that, uh-huh. that type of shit. It becomes viral and people are wanting to quote it. Uh, John uses scandal Bill publicity for the band. The night before the concert, Nana and Barquet quit the band. John and Frank go on stage by themselves in spite of Frank's deteriorating mental health. When John tries to begin the set with one of his own songs rather than one from the album, Frank has a breakdown and collapses on stage. Did you feel cheated that we didn't get a full performance from Fassbender and uh, Son of Gleason there? Absolutely. We don't really, I guess at the end, we, you can say we do, but we. But I want a full Fassbender musical performance. Yeah, just at least one of the songs, even if it's just the, the happy, likable song. I just want, <laughs> There's a crowd. I, I wanted to see them play, play in Austin. And we forgot to mention too, uh, Fassbender like full on decorates his mask for this he puts like mascara on it and lipstick and it, it does lead to in the following scene it's actually kind of funny when he wakes up and all the makeup smeared on the mask but uh um, well he comes out on drag right like he goes to the bathroom then he comes out and he's like let's fuck <laughs> <laughs> yeah because he goes in saying i need to do my ablutions uh and then yeah just it's one of those almost like a cartoon too it's like a revolving door he goes in and comes right back out um but they end up in a hotel everything's fucked up john's watching the tv and some news report is on south by southwest and he says weren't we supposed to play there and this leads to john having a complete meltdown trying to rip the the head off of frank the the helmet or mask whatever you want to call it and he runs out of the hotel room to get away from him because of this and gets hit by a car son of gleason you know chases after him (laughs) feeling like bad about this and when he gets there the mask is broken on the ground and the driver said you know he went that way and said was he hurt well he was limping and then son of gleason goes did you see his face <laughs> and the guy looks at him like what the fuck are you talking about and is before you can even process that thought son of gleason just gets fucking like rikishi <laughs> running over steve austin at the 1999 survivor series boom hit with a car what's that brad pitt movie meet joe black uh huh. Yeah. yeah. No, but this is go. this is like the 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 double Regina George. Just there you go. Wham, there you go. Bam. <laughs> just first Fassbender, then Son of Gleason. It's like you you really don't see coming that second one. But uh, he should have been a lot worse off. It's it's kind of like that cut in the Long Goodbye, <laughs> where like you expect them to to be like really fucked up. If there's that, no. I mean, I guess he broke his arm. Maybe he's in bad shape, but not as bad as I thought he was gonna be. So he finds the rest of the band. They're playing as like a, a trio in a dive bar and tries to make good with them. And they they pretty much reject him, right? Tell him to go push rope up a hill. Uh, yeah, because he, he, well, he tells them that they were right. This is, this is the moment where Son of Gleason starts turning. He becomes, he grows. He becomes a different person. He tells them they were right, that uh, he doesn't think he has any talent. So that's why he, like a leech, attach himself to them. Uh, this is the first time that we hear Maggie Gyllenhaal singing, and it is soul crushing. <laughs> and I was like, please stop, make this stop. And thankfully, it stops because Sonor Gleason decides that he's going to go on a quest to find Frank somewhere. Which takes us into a, a tiny road trip where he just follows online clues. The power of the internet, Alex. Did you cringe at the power of the internet <laughs> taking yeah, us to the climax? 
any lead he gets, like anyone can just DM him on Twitter and be like, hey, go to fucking Macon, Georgia, and he'll be there. Go to <laughs> Poco, West Virginia. He might be there. It's a, it's a miracle that he didn't get serial killed. Yeah, exactly. He gets on the road and tries to hitchhike and ends up in Evan Peters' car. He wants to take him back to his apartment to watch some movies. <laughs> Evan Peters wearing a giant head. <laughs> he finally does get a tip that leads him to Bluff City, Kansas, where he finds Frank. And this is where we see Michael Fossbender for the first time in this movie. And this literally is like Santa Claus isn't real. There is no fun or magic in the world. Nope. He has the scars. Art is not a mystery. You can see the the marks around his head where the, I guess, where the mask is resting. It really, I mean, it's, it feels like that visual feels like it belongs in a different movie. Considering where we were in the first half, where we were just like making songs with the the sound of doors closing and toothbrushes rubbing against each other and all that stuff. And now here we see this guy that's, Fassbinder is a great actor, so he can really sell you uh, a believable portrayal of somebody that is mentally ill. And and now that you don't have the mask covering it, it's, it's just, there's no whimsy. It's just kind of disturbing and sad and... Uh, it really recontextualizes, I think, the movie in a way that you were like, oh, even when I thought that we're having fun, this this guy was in a lot of pain. And so it, it's quite a downer. <laughs> and this is this is the end of the movie where he just son of Gleason comes to apologize to a very, uh, a very sick man. After numerous failed attempts, John finally succeeds in tracking Frank to his hometown of Bluff City, Kansas, where he's living with his parents. Frank is scarred and balding from prolonged use of the mask. Frank's parents explained that he suffered from severe mental health issues all his life and began wearing the mask as a teenager after his dad made it for him for an alleged costume party, but that he was always musically talented. Frank declares he has been unable to make music since the band fell apart. John takes Frank to the dive bar where the rest of the band is playing. They quickly realize who he is and join him as he begins to sing. With the original Soren Purvis restored, John leaves the bar alone. He goes off to join the Empire. Yay? <laughs> he told Fassbender, look, I know you, you're pretty down on yourself right now, but uh, come with me so you can hear what really bad music sounds like. <laughs> and once again, we're treated to Maggie Gyllenhaal singing some really depressing ballad. Uh and then Fassbender joins and what do you think, Alex, of this this final song, the song that takes us out, the, the big triumphant return of Frank to the band. Wash and smell, they could be clear. Stench of cigarettes and still you You just add it on Spotify. I mean, it was a bit of an earworm. I love you. I guess, but at this point, I was just like, really? After all we've been through, we're just going to kind of go out on this sad note of like nothing was learned. And so I just was 
ambivalent about the song, to be honest with you. I mean, they're, they're, they're where they started. And Son of Gleason, I guess he learned that music is not for him. Now the camera goes back to his where he was sitting at the bar and his beer is... Where he's going to go home to no job, parents are like, we thought you were dead, <laughs> and absolutely no money in his savings. <laughs> Welcome to the real world. Ridiculous. Did you stick around for the end credits to hear the studio version of the I Love You All song? I did, and I dug the the credits like with the um, animation and visual effects that they had. Michael Fassbender getting the end credit. And I did learn, yes, Michael Fassbender getting the end credit was fantastic. And I learned the tree surgeon was not Paul Britton of SNL fame, who I thought it was. It was Travis Hammer. Well, he's also not Michael Fassbender, which is what the movie wants you to believe for a moment. <laughs> yeah, it's um, an upsetting ending, to say the very least. We're having so much fun, Alex, with the band. <laughs> or at least it looked like we were supposed to. Uh, we probably peaked with the jacuzzi sex. I mean, to be honest, that's a fucking allegory for life. <laughs> you peak with jacuzzi sex, trust me. You fuck in a hot tub once, it's all downhill from there. Just ask uh, Kyle McLachlan. Oh, man. Well, that was a <laughs> swimming pool, but you have any sex that resembles that, you, you know, life's never looking up again. <laughs> all right. Well, that was that was Frank. That was not the city of Austin. Uh, you beat me to it. I was going to be, of all the things it was, it wasn't the city of Austin. <laughs> Let's go to Real Talk, Alex. Hell yeah. Hell Madrid, it's nice to see you. It's really nice to be here. I love you all. Still beer, fat fuck, smoked out cowpoke, sequined mountain. Fiddly digits, itchy britches. Ah.